Well, if you would this morning, let's go to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. Laura, Laura, go back, baby. To me, I mean, it's all good. I think Galatians chapter 4 is not only one of the core texts in Galatians, I think it's one of the core texts in the New Testament. And uh, if we could all get this this morning, I believe we could leave here and have liberty in Christ. I really believe that. And that is the theme that we've seen. Uh, The theme verse of Galatians is chapter 5 and verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. And uh, as we say every week by way of review and context, uh, Paul is writing to these believers in Galatia, these different churches. And he is really getting on them. He's writing passionately because they have allowed these false teachers to come in and pervert the gospel of grace because they're adding works to grace. They're (coughs) preaching works for salvation. And specifically, these Judaizers are saying that, well, yes, you know, Gentiles can become Christians. Yes, salvation is through Christ. But the way to Christ is become a Jew and fulfill the law and the men have to be circumcised. And all this has to happen before somebody can be saved. It's a mixture of grace and law. There's a lot of that going on today. Uh, Certainly not in the Jewish context, not in this country. uh, But there's certainly a lot of works, salvation systems out there. Um, It was just a few weeks ago I got to sit in the home of a former Mormon bishop. And he told me out of his own mouth, we believe in law and grace. Said it right out of his mouth. Modern day Judaizer, right there in black and white. And so uh, Paul is fighting against that. He is preaching the gospel of grace and he is defending the gospel of grace and justification by faith. And in chapter 3, he really closes out his argument. Um, I really need to read... Uh, chapter 3 and verse 24 before I get into chapter 4 to kind of springboard us. But he, he said in chapter 3 and verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. We say that word schoolmaster is not like a school teacher. In fact, it can also be translated guardian. And in that Roman culture, uh, see these Jewish-minded Galatian believers would have understood this illustration, the point that Paul was trying to make. In that Roman culture, wealthy Roman families would hire an educated slave or assign an educated slave uh, to guard or to help raise their children. And these guardians would be in the shadow of this child day and night, almost 24-7. They would be there to correct them, make sure they had proper table etiquette, proper posture, proper studies and their education, their grades and athletic competitions. It was not uncommon for the guardian to maybe slap the child or discipline them or scourge them uh, for getting out of line or not living up to the desired performance. And you can only imagine how burdensome that would be to have somebody follow you around and make sure that you're just crossing every T and dotting every I and uh, at the risk of being beat for it. Well, it, but between the ages of 14 and 17, 
uh, they would have what was called a, uh, or known as a coming-of-age ceremony, very similar to a Jewish bar mitzvah. And it would be the official passing from childhood to adulthood. And part of that ceremony was being set free from the guardian. That would be a great day, wouldn't it? be an awesome, awesome day. And that is the illustration that Paul is giving that the law is kind of like that guardian. It, it, it follows us around and it burdens us and it's never encouraging us. It's just constantly condemning us and correcting us and weighing us down. And Christ comes along and by grace through faith in His finished work, He sets us free from the burdens and the penalty and the power of the law because the law never saved anybody. It's only condemned. And so when we understand that, that's the only way we can be saved is to become lost and understand that we need to be saved. And so Paul takes this same concept, this illustration of the guardian, and that's what he leads into chapter 4 with. I've said this before, but we never did have chapter and number breaks even in our English Bible until 1551, but certainly the Hebrew and Greek never had those kind of breaks. And I, I appreciate those breaks because it gives us good reference points, but sometimes I feel like it breaks up a thought when it's not meant to. And Paul is he's just continuing this illustration of being under the guardian of the law. And so with that in mind, let's read our text this morning, and we'll be going, well, I'll read the first 11 verses. Uh, chapter 4, <clears throat> beginning in verse 1. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child differeth nothing from a servant, that, that's actually a slave, this, um, this idea of doulos, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the appointed time of the father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons." And because you are sons, God hath sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. How be it then, when you knew, God, when you knew not God, you did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you again for this day. And God, I just pray that you would empty me of sin and self. I, have, I don't have the talent, I don't have the ability, the knowledge, and certainly not the power of the Holy Spirit to illumine minds and hearts. I, I can't do that. But Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, that Christ would be magnified, Lord, the gospel would go forth, and I pray that we would leave here as victorious Christians, uh, Lord, living as a son and not as a slave. God, hide me behind the shadow of the cross, into me a sin self, and fill me and use me. God, I pray that you would show us where we are, where we need to be, and that you would take us there. It's in Christ's name I pray these things, amen. <clears throat> so this morning... Uh, the Apostle Paul is really talking about, more than anything, adoption. And here's what I want you to understand about adoption before we really dive into this. Because in our 21st century Western culture, when we think about adoption, we think about 
Obviously, the legal transaction of adopting a child. I was adopted. Uh, my parents were able to pick me up at two months old. Uh, I became a Vaughn. I was adopted into the Vaughn family. And while that is absolutely a part of adoption, that is not the biblical emphasis on the doctrine of adoption. So here's what I want you to get. When you read and study the Bible and you come across the concept of adoption as it pertains to salvation, it is always emphasizing the inheritance of the adult adopted person. And so it's not simply the, the adoption of a child. It is the, is the family inheritance to the adult that has been adopted. And so that's, that's the emphasis here. Not on the child part, but the inheritance of the adult part. And for example, uh, after I was adopted, my adopted parents gave birth to a daughter. We're only nine months apart. And we always had fun confusing people when they asked how far apart we were in age. They're like, how is that even possible? You know, we didn't, we didn't bother to tell them. But I'm a Vaughn just like she's a Vaughn. I'm going to get the inheritance just like she gets the inheritance. And the comparison being made is that we're joint heirs with Christ. We're, we're co-equal with Christ in that sense that we're adopted into the family of God and there's no distinction there. That's not Paul's specific emphasis here, but I want you to understand the biblical concept of adoption. You're going to see this very clearly as we walk through this text today. And so this morning, if you were to give the message a title, it would be a son or a slave. Which one are you? A son or a slave, which one are you? I'll say this and we'll get into the message. It is possible for a son to live like a slave, but it's impossible for a slave to live like a son. So a son or a slave, which one are you? Well, what are some key differences between the two, between a son and a slave as it pertains to Christ? Well, number one, I want you to know that a son has reached spiritual maturity. A son, uh, a mature child of God, they have reached spiritual maturity, whereas an immature Christian many times still lives like they're a slave under the law. Spiritual maturity. Look at verse 1. Let's break this down. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, are a slave, though he be Lord of all. Now, if we're saved, if you're saved today, you're an heir and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. Uh, you're a part of the family of God. And so we're not talking necessarily about the difference between a lost person and a saved person. We're talking about saved people who are not living the victorious Christian life. They may be saved, but in some ways, they've gone back to old religion. Or, or I tell you what, it, what I would liken it to. Uh, there are saved people who they might say, yes, I'm saved by faith in Jesus Christ, but I'm made righteous by doing X, Y, Z. You understand the difference? They would say, I've been saved by grace through faith. They probably have been, but in practice... They're looking to the things that they do to say, oh, this makes me sanctified over here. This makes me righteous. This makes me holy. No, Christ did all that. And so that's many times the difference between uh, a mature and immature Christian. But I want you to understand we're talking about saved people uh, who are 
taking different paths. That's why he said the heir here, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a, a servant or a slave, though he be Lord of all. As long as a child is a child, even though, yes, he may even be in a royal family, uh, but if he's still looking to the law, he's put himself back under that guardian, uh, under that burden of the guardian. That's the illustration he's continuing here. Verse 2, it says, but is under tutors. That, that's the same word we get guardian or schoolmaster from. We're talking about the same thing. And governors. Governor was another slave that they would entrust to instruct their child, but not, not to the burdensome level of a guardian. It said, until the time appointed to the father. That speaks of that coming of age ceremony where he's set free or she is set free uh, from the guardian. Verse 3, even so are in the same way. See, he's equating this illustration with, with us and specifically to these Galatian believers. Even so, we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. When it uses that phrase, receive the adoption of sons, it's talking about the inheritance. We're going to talk about that a little more in a minute. And so uh, the elements here, this is important. Uh, when it says that, you were, that we were under the bondage of the elements of the world, this, is, this has a religious context to it. In fact, uh, it's defined for us right here in the context of verses 8 through 10. It says, how be it then when you, were, uh, when you knew not God, you did service unto them which were by nature no gods. In other words, false dead religion. It says, but now, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements? There's that word again. Whereunto you desire again to be in bondage. You observe days and months and times and years. So the elements, this is, this is religious. It's not talking about necessarily the world system, even though there's a lot of religion involved with that. It's talking about being a slave to things that are no God at all, to re dead religion. Religious observance. And, and Paul's point here is obvious. In position, a child is a child and a slave is a slave, but in practice, there's no difference between a slave and a child who is under a guardian. In other words, there is no practical difference between a Jew under the law and a Christian who places himself under the law. There's no difference in practice, even though uh, positionally there's a big difference. Now, let me say this. I believe there's genuine Christian people who are saved and going to heaven, and yet they have placed themselves under religious rules that make them think that they are more right with God than other Christians and somebody else. Now, th these kinds of religious works and deeds, they appeal to our pride. They appeal to our sinful flesh because they give us little boxes that we can check off and and they give us things that can be measured and can be readily seen. Oh, look at what I'm doing. The immature Christian will admit that their salvation comes through Christ, but they think their holiness and sanctification comes through what they can do, or more specifically, what they don't do. The flip side of this thinking is that they automatically assume that if somebody else isn't doing what they are doing, or not doing what they're not doing, then they feel... At best, that maybe that person isn't as holy as them, and at worst, they're not even saved. What, listen, one of the hallmarks of an immature Christian is 
that they measure their level of spirituality by what they don't do. Now listen, if the, now listen we ought to, there ought to be some things as Christians we're against, no doubt about it. We ought to preach against some things. We ought to be against some things. I'm not afraid to preach against certain things. But if the highlight of our Christianity is based on what we don't do, there's a big problem with that. We ought to be known by Christ and what we do for Him, not what we're not doing. I've been to some churches where, uh, you know, the pastor or the visiting evangelist, whatever the case may be, it's like, it's like a badge of honor. Like they want to talk about all the things they don't do. And I'm thinking, wow, you're super spiritual. Or you go by a sign and you can tell by the sign that's this long, you know, based on things that they don't do or things that they're, they stand against. That's immaturity. This, the immature Christian wants to be known by what they don't do. Uh, immature Christians, they tend to major on the minors. Their focus is more on what they do more than what Christ has done. And I can say this because I've been there. As a younger Christian, I mean, I tell you, it's a dangerous thing to have a lot of zeal and not a whole lot of knowledge. I mean, I, I've been there, and, you know, sometimes I'm still there, if I'm honest. And, um, man, I tell you, it was, when I first started preaching, it was scary. I mean, I didn't know anything but, but flamethrowers and napalm and scorched earth. I mean, I used to use a pulpit like a Gatlin gun. And, um, I mean, I don't know who in the world let me go at such a young age, but they probably lost crowns in heaven because of it. <laughs> and all I can say is that I thank God every day that we didn't have social media back then. I'm just glad. Y'all just say, thank you, Lord, that you didn't send us that, Brandon. <laughs> and, man, I, looking back, I did some things and I said some things, and, I mean, it, it just grieves me in my spirit. It really does. But I was majoring... Uh, on the minors, you know. And I, I thought about, a, as I was uh, praying about this and kind of going over, I, th- I thought about a specific example that grieves me in my spirit. And um, we went on a youth trip several years ago. Um, I was probably 18, 19 at the time, maybe not even that old. And uh, the youth pastor had asked me to preach just like a, I don't know, a little message um, as we stopped along our way, you know, something. And and we had a guy come with us. He was the dad of one of the kids in the youth. And, uh, you know, he was one of the church's most faithful members. I mean, he was always there. He was, he was faithful to give. He was faithful to work. I mean, he had all these things that he did. He's just a very humble, loving guy. But the only thing that I could see at that point in my Christianity was the fact that he had a problem with cigarettes. He couldn't. It's just something that he, I guess he just never could totally... Turned over to the Lord. That's all that I focused on. It's all that I could see. Now listen, I'm not, t- I'm not recommending you go out and smoke a cigarette. I mean, I, I, mean, I don't know that you could necessarily you know, smoke a, drag a cigarette to the glory of God. I'm not, I don't think you could probably do that. But I will say this, um, I, I know we need to take care of the temple and I get all that. But I always uh, thought, you know, later on as I got a little bit of sense, I, I always thought it was a little weird and somewhat hypocritical to have a 400-plus-pound diabetic preacher talk about taking care of the temple and, you know, preaching somebody to hell for smoking cigarettes. Uh, I think there's bigger issues out there. And 
anyway, when I, got a, when I got a chance to preach that, that day, that's all I did, basically was slamming on cigarettes. And everybody knew who I was talking about. I mean, nobody had to guess who I was talking about. And it was about a year later, uh, understand when I got saved, um, it was the, I got saved the summer going into my freshman year of high school. And when I got in high school, man, I just had problems. Like, um, you know, they were trying to cram evolution down my throat. And I had a debate class where they, uh, the first assignment was I had to write a letter to the governor of Alabama either thanking him for the gay rights that we had or either asking him to give more gay rights. And I said, well, what if you think that now this is just me and my no filter here. But I said, what do you, I said, what do you do if, you don't believe that somebody should have special rights just because they choose to, who they choose to sleep with. And they said, well, we'll fail you and kick you out of the class. I said, you might as well give me an F. And that's the kind of, that's the kind of junk I was dealing with, even, even at that age. So, you know, by God's grace, my parents allowed me to go to Christian school, and I thank them for that. I thank the Lord for that. But my junior year, we were going through some hard times financially and my family was going to have to take me out of that school. I was going to have to go back to that environment. And I was just sick. My stomach was in knots. I just I didn't want to deal with it. And lo and behold, I found out that somebody had found out about that, and they had anonymously paid a whole year's tuition for me to stay at that school. And, you know, I, I couldn't believe that. I was just so shocked by that. I, I, I went a year. I never knew who did that. But years later, somebody told me who it was. And I, I haven't been able to confirm it. But I'm almost a thousand percent sure it was that same man that I had dragged through the mud because of cigarettes. And so, you know, God's got a way of, of kind of humbling you and, and taking some of the things out of you. Once again, I'm not, I'm not exalting that, but I think you understand the difference here. I was focusing on this one thing over here, and I was totally neglecting all of the other good qualities. By the way, every Christian on planet Earth is messed up. I hope you know that. I mean, just in case you, you don't know, you got a messed up pastor. And all God's people said. You know. <laughs> we've all got issues and problems. We've all got immaturities. We've all got weaknesses. That's why he said that if he began a good work in us, he would perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. That's one of the greatest blessings of heaven is it says we shall be like him. Well, that means we ain't like him now. And so, I want you to understand that we need to be careful about majoring on the minors. And, you know, we, we do need to be salt. There's no doubt about that. But we also need to have some grace and discernment about us. And so, these, these Judaizers were making Jesus and His work as nothing more than a parenthesis to what they were doing and teaching. And if we're not careful, even as Christians, we can do that. They were religiously observing days and feasts and ordinances, not even realizing that all of these things just pointed to Christ in the first place. They just pointed to Christ. And, and sometimes, uh, even in our own ranks, I mean, even within the ranks of the IFB, which is what I know, I've been in it for over 20 years, I, I know it. And some of the burdensome elements within the IFB and you know, this is what I'm telling you. I could preach against alcohol. 
I could preach against adultery, fornication. I could preach against homosexuality. I could preach against any sin. You name it, I could preach against it. And nobody would even bat an eye. But you go to preaching about Christian liberty, that's when you go to getting scalped. And we're going to see in the coming chapters, Paul is going to make the statement to these Galatian believers. He's going to say, have I become your enemy because I told you the truth? He was telling the truth about Christian liberty, and that's what got them riled up. And so, uh, you know, I say these things, it's going to upset some people, but because I care about the Scriptures and because I care about the Gospel, I'm going to say them anyway. I know that probably doesn't come as a surprise to you. But, you know, some of the, some of the burdensome things within the independent Baptists that I've seen over the years that get elevated to a place of Gospel, the virgin birth, the deity of Christ, and on a level of salvation is this, this cultic... And I, I do want to differentiate between, you know, being serious about the Word of God and being dedicated to a King James Bible versus this cultic King James onlyism that I've seen in my day. Like, it's insane. Um, I, I caused a big riff. I didn't mean to, or I really didn't mean to. But they had a, a big King James Bible debate at a big church on the East Coast uh, not quite a year ago, and I wrote a blog about it, and it went viral. And I, I just expressed uh, my concern. I was upset with the debate, some of the debaters. I was upset with the moderator, and I thought it. I just thought it made independent Baptists look stupid, and I, I just called them out. And within 30 minutes, I had people from that debate, the moderator, the pastor, wanting to interview me and straighten some things out online. I said, "Okay," and uh, because it's silly. I mean, it really is, it's crazy. I know people right now that would say that you couldn't even be saved out of another version of the Bible but the King James. That is as cultic as Jim Jones. Uh, it's, not, it's not like there's some aura that's just flowing from the pages like, you know, a relic from an Indiana Jones movie. It's the message of the gospel. It's the power of the gospel unto salvation to all them that believe. And so, you know, if some folks want to get upset, they can get upset, but they've got no argument. They've got none. And so, but I've seen that become a point of contention to the point that we can't even get along cordially with people that haven't come to that conclusion. It's cultic. And I won't stand for it. I won't stand for it. You do not have to be intimidated by people that don't believe exactly the same thing you do. It does not make you a compromiser to show compassion to those with whom you disagree. That goes for lost people and saved. I know homosexuals, they're lost as a duck in the desert. I would invite them into my home. I have in the past. I've had them sit at my table. I've taken them out and bought their lunch, bought them dinner. But you know what I did? I loved them enough to share the gospel with them and tell them that they were not in the will of God. I've also got Christian friends that are going to be my neighbors in heaven. I have vehement disagreements with them on non-gospel issues. They're going to be my neighbor in heaven. By the way, you better learn to get along with, you, with your family of God down here because if you don't get rid of some of those grudges... I just believe God has enough humor about him. I believe he's going to make y'all next door neighbors in heaven. <laughs> it does not make you a compromiser to show compassion to those with whom you disagree. 
And the only way that somebody is incapable of doing that is they are not secure in the things that they believe. I know who I am in Christ. I know what I believe. I have no problem telling you in plain English, but I'm not going to be intimidated by the fact that I can't get people to go along with me. I don't have to do that. And as Christians, as mature Christians in Christ, we shouldn't have to do that. I've also seen within the IFB, we're just going to make everybody mad in one fell swoop and get it over with. I've seen some unscriptural standards of dress that are lifted up in the IFB. Now listen, modesty is not an option. We're commanded to dress modestly. That goes for men and women. Uh, Cover it up, folks. I mean, you shouldn't want to dress in a way that draws that kind of attention to yourself. It's not, it's just not becoming of a child of God. I'm thankful. This church really, I've not had an issue with that. I'm so thankful for that. We we, we want to dress in, you know, the the way that we dress communicates a message. It really does. It it is a, it's its own language. And so, but I mean, you know, I've been in churches where they act like if, if the men don't wear a suit, they're just not right with God. And, you know, I wear a suit to church, but I'm the pastor. Like, I'm, I'm, I believe that I should look professional. You ought not have to walk in this church and have to guess who the pastor is. That, that's a conviction that I have and I hold, and I, I want to maintain that. But I've never looked at somebody and said, man, I can't believe that guy's not wearing a tie. I thought he loved God, you know. <laughs> Silly. You go to some of the places I've been in some of the poorest inner cities in America, or you've been to some of the villages that I've been to in Mexico and places like that, they ain't having those conversations. Most of them don't even get to go to church in shoes, much less a suit and tie. Silly. And so, you know, modesty is not an option. I don't think it's an option as far as, uh, you know, being gender specific. Men ought to look like men and Women ought to look like women, but as far as what that looks like specifically for each individual, I'm not going to play Holy Spirit on that. And so, you know, uh, my, my wife uh, has given it to the Lord. She's only going to wear skirts and dresses. That's the way we raise our daughters, and they're going to have to make that decision when they get older. But that, y'all have never heard me preach that a woman ain't right with God if she hadn't come to that conclusion. Or that it makes her any whole, listen, some of the longest tongue gossiping Jezebels I've ever met wouldn't be caught dead in a pair of pants. Some of the finest Christian women I've ever known don't have that conviction. I don't lose sleep over that. My wife didn't lose sleep over that. And I have never told you to turn in your Bibles to Vaughn 3.16 so I could tell you exactly how you need to dress for every event in your life. And so, uh, but I've seen that. It's, um, it's very cult-like. It's scary. Uh, I've seen it even... You know, when it comes to the, the Christian music that we listen to, I mean, some of the stuff that I heard growing up about, you know, I mean, even specifically down to the instruments that you couldn't have in a song or what kind of style it was. Listen, when it, just on a personal level, when it comes to music, I try to ask these questions. Is it doctrinally sound? Does it have a clear biblical message? Does it really honor the Lord? And is it so akin to worldliness that it's louder than any of those other things that I just mentioned. That's the questions we should be asking. Um, I, I've seen, I've known pastors that split a church over whether or not they could have drums or whether or not, I just, you know, I, I just, we're going to hell in a handbasket and we're, talk, we're, we're still arguing about these things? This country's going to hell and this is what we're splitting churches over. Um, 
I, like I said, I may have to open the window and go out the back way this morning. But I, I think y'all are I think y'all are better than that. Um, you know, and, and just some other stuff that I admit is limited, but I have I have honestly I've had to deal with this in the circles that I came from. You know, I, I know people that don't use any type of playing cards or any kind of games. They think it's uh, akin to witchcraft. And, you know, listen, I'm not throwing rocks at people that, that do that. I'm not trying to slam anyone's personal convictions because that would be wrong. But it would also be wrong to take those personal Romans 14 convictions and try to make it the standard that everybody else should live by. You say, well, why are you talking about this, Brother Brandon? Let's get back in Galatians. Listen, Paul was dealing specifically what the Judaizers were doing. I'm dealing specifically with what some of our own ranks are doing. Um, you know, I've, I've had people condemn me uh, for going to a movie theater before. Now listen, we're, you can ask our kids, we're really strict on things we watch. I just can't, pers- I can't sit there and watch somebody using the Lord's name in vain every other word. I can't do it. I can't, I can't watch something that's got a bunch of sex. I just can't do it. It, it bothers me too bad. It, I can, it's like the Lord is just choking me. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it because it dishonors God, not because it makes me some hot shot. But listen, if there's a decent movie, we'll go to the theater and watch it. And, but, you know, you think that I was a heretic. By the way, some people acted about that. I know people that have the conviction they're not going to eat at a restaurant that serves alcohol. Listen, I respect that. And if somebody invited me to a restaurant and I knew they had that conviction, I would pick a restaurant that didn't do that. But to think that somehow I'm ungodly because, I, I, you know, I don't drink alcohol. I don't touch the stuff. But I eat restaurants that serve it. That's, that's a, a personal thing. It's not a biblical thing. But I've, I've seen that lifted to a level where it becomes burdensome. Um, th- y'all y'all going to think this is crazy. Um, I actually had this pop up on my Facebook memories the other day. Y'all are going to think this is funny. I, um, this, is, this is right before we moved from Alabama. But I was trying to go through Starbucks and get a coffee for Leah. The espresso helps her head a little bit. And I was just going so crazy. You know, I can't walk and chew bubble gum at the same time. And I was running like a scalded dog that day. And there was a Captain D's right next to the Starbucks. And I get in line at what I think is Starbucks. And I get right up to the window. And the lady says, welcome to Captain D's. Going to have your order. And I, I thought, to, I wonder what she would do if I ordered a venti, you know, Mocha cookie crumble frappe, you know, she'd probably die, you know. And Allison thought that was the funniest. She never let me forget about that. But anyway, I had I finally ended up at Starbucks, finally got the right thing, but I posted about that online and people were losing their minds because I got a star a Starbucks coffee. Now listen, Starbucks is liberal. They stand for everything that I hate. I understand all that. People boycott them. Let, let me tell you something. If y'all want to do that, that's fine. I fully support you. I'm not throwing rocks at you. But if you really got down to I'm just making everybody mad today. If we really got down to it, if you really did the research, 85 to 90% of every company, every product we buy, every service we get, they give to corrupt, liberal, evil causes. I mean, we would be walking barefoot back and forth between Hobby Lobby and Chick-fil-A. That'd be all we could ever do. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a bad life, does it? So, so my thing is, if you're going to boycott, be real about it. Let's be consistent about it. Boy, just boycott everything. Just go off in the woods and be a hermit. But don't get on me for it. Listen, I, 
I work out at Planet Fitness. That's the most liberal company that's ever existed. But you know what? I'm redeeming it. You know, I hope God gives me this. I hope I live to be 100 years old. And I hope, God, I hope God lets me be a part of a major nationwide revival. And then when somebody ever interviews me on how it all happened, I just would like to thank my spon- one of my sponsors, Planet Fitness, for keeping me alive long enough and preaching harder. Boy, they'd love that, wouldn't they? See, you can only say these things if you have liberty. I'm just comfortable with my skin this morning. Like, I can feel the tension and I love it. We're going for another hour. But I think you get what I'm saying. The immature Christian wants to be known by what they don't do. That's immaturity. It's childish. And, and it's, it's a burdensome thing because when you think like that, you can never actually rest in Christ because you're constantly worried about whether you're crossing every T and, and dotting every I. Just like the, the underage child is still under the burden of the guardian, they place themselves under these rules and they uh, place themselves under the law for holiness and righteousness And yes, the immature Christian is on their way to heaven just like a mature Christian, but they have no true liberty in Christ. The immature Christian is long on the law and short on grace. Mature children of God have liberty in Christ. Immature children of God are still slaves to the law in a practical sense. And so I'm just, I've been in this thing long enough. I'm not going to allow what anybody else thinks to put me under the yoke of their opinion. I'm just not going to do it. I, I know how I am in Christ. Um, Proverbs says that a fear of man bringeth forth a snare. And we worry way too much about what people think many times. Uh, I, I got two things very quickly. I, wanna, I, wanna, I do want to get through this this morning. But number two, we're talking about a son or a slave. Which one are you? We've looked at the difference between immature and mature Christians as it pertains to salvation and adoption. Uh, the second thing I want you to know about this is spiritual benefits, the spiritual benefits of the adoption. Look at verse 4. It says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of Son. I love this text. In fact, I had to write an entire paper for one of my college classes last semester on this one text that I just read in verses 4 and 5. In fact, the title of it was called The Fullness of Time. And I had to write a paper about what that meant. And the fullness of time, it literally means the perfect time. Christ came into this world at the perfect ordained time, the sovereignly ordained time for Christ to come to this world. Uh, At no other time in history... Could the gospel have spread like it did? Think about this. A few hundred years prior to Christ coming on the scene, Alexander the Great conquered a massive portion of the known world and founded the Greek Empire. He instituted what was known as Hellenism, and Hellenism was the infusion of Greek language and culture into their conquered peoples. And so now you had a whole empire of different nations, and now they have a common language, Koine Greek. And on the same note, the Jews who were in captivity, they began to lose their native Hebrew. They began to speak this Koine Greek. And so the scribes realized how important it was to keep their Old Testament. 
So they translated uh, the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, uh, into what is known as the Septuagint. This gave, the, this gave Christ, the early apostles, the early church, a ready-made Old Testament by which to preach Christ from the Old Testament. Not only that, but after the death of Alexander, there was a lot of power struggle, a lot of wars, and it was really un- an unstable environment. But when Caesar Augustus took over, he instituted what was known as the Pax Romana or the Roman peace. And, you know, they, they, the Romans built state-of-the-art road systems, like the likes which had never been seen prior to that time. They also offered military protection on these roads for all their citizens. And so now they had a common language, a common Old Testament, and the safety and means by which to get it to the four corners of the empire. He truly came at the fullness of time, didn't he? He came at the perfect time. Even in that 400-year silence between the Old and New Testament, God was still moving. God was in control. And so Christ came at the perfect time. He fulfilled the law and died on the cross to redeem us from sin. And the law, which brings death, uh, the word redemption or to redeem is a beautiful Bible word. It means to buy back with a price. And the picture that's given here is of an abolitionist buying a slave off the auction block just to set him free. You know, wherever slavery has existed, this was true even in this country, there would be certain wealthy abolitionists who would buy slaves from the auction block, and as soon as they came off the auction block, he signed their freedom papers and and just freedom. That's exactly what Christ did. He redeemed us. He bought us with His own blood. He bought us from the law of sin and death, and He saved us and set us free. In verse 5, when it says to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons, that's the inheritance that's being talked about here to that mature child or that mature uh, Christian believer. It means we receive the benefits as an adult who is freed from the guardian of the law. Paul's point is, if Christ died in order to redeem us from the penalty and power of the law, then why would we want to go back? If we were freed from the guardian, why would we want to go back? If these Galatian believers, if they had been freed from the law, why would they want to go back? It's immaturity. Look what I can do. Look at the boxes that I've checked. It appeals to our pride. Now, this isn't permission. Now, when people, some people hear this, they think that we're just preaching a license to sin here that... You know, the law has no bearing at all. It still gives us a guide. The moral law does. It's still wrong to kill. It's still wrong to steal. Understand it, but that's all the do's and don'ts don't make us right with God. Um, this isn't permission or encouragement to live a loose lifestyle. It's quite the opposite. The mature Christian has liberty in Christ, and this liberty is to live for Christ without being a slave to religious legalism on one side or to sin on the other side. The mature Christian says, Christ has made me righteous. Now by His grace, I can live righteously. Christ has made me holy. Now by His grace, I can live holy. Christ has made me His child. Now by His grace, I can live like a child of God. Positionally, a child of God will always be a child of God. But practically speaking, there is no difference between a child of God and a religious nut when we lose sight of who we are in Christ. Are you a child of God this morning? Do you feel like it? Do you enjoy it? Do you have peace and joy in the Lord? Are you enjoying the benefits of salvation? Peace with God? 
joy in the Lord, freedom and forgiveness from sin, assurance of heaven. Uh, now, understand, we go through hard times and trials. I get that. I don't always feel those benefits every second of my life. But if it becomes the norm, I would be concerned about that. Uh, in verse 1, Paul says, if you're not enjoying the benefits of being a son, you're the same as a slave. That's exactly what he's, the point he's making. But then, thirdly and lastly, I'm done. I really am coming in for a landing. Um, thirdly, I want you to know concerning adoption, I want you to know about spiritual sonship. Look at verse 6. And because you're sons, God has set forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, whereunto thou art no more a servant but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when you knew not God, you did service unto them, which by nature are no gods. But now, after that you have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Now, in the Old Testament, the Jews clearly understood God as creator. They understood Him as king. However, the concept of God as father was a very foreign concept to the Old Testament Jews. So this is a mouthful. When the Apostle Paul says that as believers in Christ, we are the sons and daughters of God. We have the spirit of Christ dwelling within us. We have direct access to the Father through the Son. We have a longing in our hearts to be in the presence of our Heavenly Father. And we cry out, Abba, Father. The word Abba here is an Aramaic word. It literally means Daddy. That's an intimate word. I've never called one of my buddies Daddy. Never called one of my, you know, adult male role. I never even call one of my adult male role models Daddy like that. It's very intimate and personal. And even though He is King, even though He is the sovereign monarch of the universe, He is our Heavenly Father. If you're saved, He cares about us. He loves us. We have a relationship with Him. We're not pursuing a slave-owner slave relationship. We're pursuing a father-child relationship. And so, He is our Heavenly Father. And the central point that Paul is screaming from the rooftops to these Galatians is, if you're a child of God, then why are you living like a slave? I'm going to ask you the same question. If you're a child of God this morning, why are you living like a slave? That could apply to those who are a slave to their own uh, works-based righteousness, or you could be a slave to sin. As a child of God, you shouldn't be enslaved to either one of those things. You're a child of God. Why are you living like a slave? If a son, then why a slave? Verse 7, Paul clearly reminds them of who they are in Christ. He says, thou art no more a servant. You're not a slave anymore, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Wow. One of Satan's greatest objectives is to get you to doubt who you are in Christ. In Christ, we are loved, we're accepted, we're cherished, we're special, we're clean, we're holy, we're sanctified, we're justified, and we're on our way to heaven. If Satan can get you to doubt those things, you'll never have joy in the Lord. And the joy of the Lord is our strength. The question is, are we living like it? I want to give you one illustration. I'm done. But I want to compare the, the immature Christian life, the slave, so to speak, 
with a mature Christian who has liberty. If you think about it like this, there's a, I actually read a story about a young pilot. Uh, he was just gotten out of the Air Force Academy. He was a hot shot. They, they put him in an F-16 jet, you know, and he's up there in the sky on one of his runs and one of his exercises, and he, he happens to see one of those big commercial flyers, the Boeing 777, you know, and so he thinks, man, I'm about to impress this pilot here. So he pulls up to the, to the big 777, and he looks out his window till he gets the attention of the pilot. He looks at him. He gets on the radio to this pilot over here, and he says, hey, man, check this out. So this young hotshot pilot, man, he's doing all kind of tricks. I mean, he's going straight up in the air until the plane falls down to speed of gravity. He, I mean, he's doing loops. He's hitting about six or seven Gs till he almost passes out. And then he, I mean, even to the point where he scared himself a little bit. And he pulls back up to the side of that big 777. He looks at the pilot, he gets all ready, he goes, what do you think about that? So the old seasoned pilot there in the 777, he gets on the radio and he says, it's all right. He said, check this out. He said, don't go anywhere. He said, I'll be back, just, just check this out, don't go anywhere. So the pilot gets off the radio, he gets out of his pilot's chair, and he disappears out of sight. The, the young pilot in the S-16, he can't see him anymore. And man, he waits and he waits and 10 minutes go by and nothing happens. And 20 minutes go by and nothing happens. And 30 minutes go by. He said, what is going on? He said he would have left if it wasn't for curiosity. And finally, the pilot comes back. He buckles his seat back up and he gets on the radio. He says, what did you think about that, big boy? And he goes, what did you do? He said, well, I... Got up and stretched my legs. I walked to the back of the cabin, used the bathroom, got me some coffee and a snack, and took a little power nap and came back to see you. What do you think about that, big boy? <laughs> Moral of that story is you don't have to be crazy to be comfortable. You don't have anything to prove. I don't have anything to prove. I'm who I am in Christ, and you are too if you're saved. Don't be under the yoke of bondage again. Because I know which one I'd rather do. <laughs> well, would you rather hit six G's? Don't answer this question. <laughs> would you rather hit six G's and black out an F-16, or would you rather just take it easy on a big old 777? I know which one I want to do. See, that's the difference between the immature Christian life and the mature one. We just sit back and enjoy Christ. Amen? Don't be under the yoke of bondage. Are you a child of God? Are you living like it? Are you enjoying the benefits of being a blood-bought child of God? Let me say this. It could be possible, I'm not trying to cast out, but it could be possible that if you're living like a slave, you might be a slave still. Maybe you've never been saved. Maybe you've never been born again or adopted in the family of God. You can be today if you'd put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ to save you. Maybe you are saved, but you still feel like you're under that guardian. Let it go. Give it to the Lord. Let it go and enjoy being saved. Are you a son or a slave?